Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening and subscribing to Behind the Screen. I am your host, JT Kane. I am the Dean of Visiting Faculty and the Orchestra Manager at the New World Symphony, and I'm here with my good friend and producer, who is a bassoonist, uh, Matt Corey, and, and we're here to talk to you all about auditions, specifically orchestra auditions, which take place behind a screen, hence the name Behind the Screen. And we hope that our discussions and our guests will be a resource and inspiration for anyone who is currently taking auditions or really just interested in the audition process or just a big classical music fan. I see what you're doing now. You like it? Yeah. I see you're trying to weave in some narrative about the two of us. That's pretty I practiced uh, slick. all day. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, yeah. So now that people are listening to this, they found it odd that there's just this two random JT and Matt two just coming just on. just talking, yeah. <laughs> like with no idea of who does what and yeah. where, who we are and yeah. Well, there's plenty of time to get to know us. There is. Everyone should pretty much know us by now, I think. that's. I think that's part of the problem is we just assume that we're like, you know, these big cheese oh. and we're no one knows us at all. So what you're hearing that we, nobody really knows us and... <laughs> Could care less. All right. <laughs> I think they care about something, but yes. Well, if they're listening, they should care. This is this is going to be one of the best ones we've had so far. This is going to be the best one. Yep. This podcast is brought to you by Insight for the Blind, a very special recording studio based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where over 100 volunteers produce talking books and magazines for the blind and physically handicapped, so that all may read. See for yourself at insightfortheblind.org. And um, full disclosure, I am the president and CEO of Insight for the Blind. So there you have it. There's another piece of the puzzle for mm-hmm. those of you who are trying to get to know us. Thank you and thank Insight for the Blind for, for sponsoring this, um, the, sponsoring Behind the Screen. Super happy we can be here. And we're also incredibly happy that joining us today is Andrew Brady, who's the principal bassoonist of the Atlanta Symphony. Andrew, welcome to Behind the Screen. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's really great that you can be here. Um, and again, some background. We're we're doing all background right now. Um, <laughs> I've known I've known Andrew since twenty thirteen. I think it was. Yeah, 13. yeah. I was actually really curious because I was looking up Andrew's uh, CV and I couldn't find anything about New World Symphony. That's right. So, so it's not a New World connection. It is not a New World connection. It is, in fact, a Louisiana Philharmonic connection. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. And Andrew was before Atlanta Symphony. Uh, you know what? I'll go ahead and let you talk because <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants to hear me. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? So, <laughs> Andrew, please uh, tell us more. So you joined the Atlanta Symphony in... 2016. 2016, mm-hmm. yes. And uh, wait, how... Okay. So up until I was principal bassoon of Louisiana Phil from 2013 until January 2016. Right. Yeah. And I So you were in. 14 when you won that job? For, for I was real. actually 12. So uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I was 20. I was 22, 23, right around there. Wow, uh, that was fast. So wait, are you, how old are you now? I'm 29. You're 29. Okay. So when you. When you joined the LPO in 2013, um, I can't do math that quickly. You were... I don't know if it's right. I mean, don't, don't rely on me for that. Yeah. Okay, so I, it, was, it was actually really interesting to me. 
when I heard your audition, I was proctoring. Mm-hmm. And there were maybe about 25, maybe 30 bassoonists, something around that. And I just remember, I don't know if I ever told you this, I remember sitting in that audition. And this is something that I think I, 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 think I would, um, all people that, that proctor, we, we listen and, you know, we hear things. And, and I remember that day specifically when you played, I was like, well, that, that's it. There's, I mean, there's really no one. It was that good. It was so great. <laughs> Thank so you. <laughs> t- walk me through a little bit about taking an audition. I mean, this is what we're, we're really here to talk about. When you auditioned for Atlanta, walk me through that day and what your, your mindset was, what you were feeling. Do you remember at all? Well, first off, which time? Because I auditioned for Atlanta actually twice. I did not know that. Yeah. So um, they, uh, their prin- former principal bassoonist, Carl Nietzsche, um, he retired. And then they had an audition, which my friend, uh, who is now a principal bassoonist in Chicago, Keith Bunky, won. Um, so it was in that audition that I advanced to semis and did not advance further. And then once he got to Atlanta, he wasn't here long. He won Chicago. They had another audition, um, which ended up being a no hire. I didn't take that audition. Um, so they had another, yet a, a third audition, mm-hmm. which I ended up getting to finals and getting a trial for. So I, I don't know if I can tell you much. I do remember one thing about the um, the audition the day that I won it from finals, and it was it's really trivial. I don't think anything is really trivial. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, and I'm not saying that as a as as a joke, but it is it's true. I mean, I think these little the little things that you might think are trivial, I think are just something that makes the difference. Mm, yeah. Well, tell me what it is. Yeah. So it was just in finals. You know, the screen came down. I was sitting in front of a panel of seven musicians and the music director. And Beethoven 9, last movement, the bassoon solo was an excerpt that they wanted mm-hmm. to hear. And I don't know if you know, but there are different editions that have slightly different rhythm. So, that's one version. And then there's also, and it's just very slight. But one of the people on the panel asked me, like, why did you not play the rhythm that was on the page because they were looking at a different edition mm-hmm. and i was just used to playing this other version so i did it and i was just like well I, I i i don't know i mean it's just what i'm used to and then other the bassoonists on the committee kind of were just like well it's, it's done either way that yeah that that is interesting so uh, in the finals was the music director there was was spano there he was there mm-hmm. and do you know if he did it one way versus the other way i do not know that I don't think there's been a recording of Atlanta Symphony playing Beethoven 9 with Spano conducting. And actually, I don't know, I don't think I've even done Beethoven 9 here with him, hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. I don't think I have. Yeah. So I have no clue how he likes it. <laughs> For me, that's not, I don't, I don't actually think that's trivial. I think that's, that's key because I'm thinking, so if you were taking an audition for another orchestra, say, say, say Chicago. I don't know, pick a, pick an orchestra and you played it one way and they, the music director did it the other way. Could that be a factor as to why they chose someone other, you know, than than you? So, I mean, if it is two different ways and it's acceptable in both ways, I mean, you're not, you're not really playing an incorrect rhythm, right? Right. No. 
a variation, I guess. Variation. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what violists say. As a violist, I say, this is my interpretation. This is my variation on mm-hmm. what intonation should be. Exactly. <laughs> I always like to use the term expressive intonation. Oh, it's if, perfect. Yeah. I love that. That's great. We always, we always used to say it's better to be sharp than out of tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Well, we won't go into what violists know or don't know. Um, you took the two auditions in Atlanta. The first time you got to the semis and the, and the second time you won. Do you know if there was or what there was different that you did between those two specifically? I can tell you what I changed between the two. Great. But I don't think that what I changed actually ended up benefiting me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> yeah. Going into the second audition, uh, you know, I... I gone to quite a few festivals with Keith Bunky mm-hmm. and I kind of knew the way he played and so I had an idea in my head like this is what they're going to be listening for um, so maybe if I try to you know temper some of my style with Keith Bunky style it'll maybe work better for me and then there was also just um, I'd heard from friends that the Atlanta Symphony wind section has a certain sound mm-hmm. which was not really my style of playing at the time and so i tried to go towards that for the audition. Well, talk a little bit more about that because yeah. that, that's it's very interesting that there is a certain sound I and mean, we've talked to some other people about listening to recordings or and trying to play the way that an orchestra their their sound, Chicago brass or, or mm-hmm. Cleveland whatever it is. So what was what was it that and did you did you talk to Keith after he left because he's he's also he's around your age, right? He's a mm-hmm. little maybe a little younger. He's uh Two or three years younger, or something yeah. like that. I guess the Atlanta wind sound is just very refined, and I guess some would call it dark, especially for like bassoon playing, which I think is there's a general trend um, in American bassoon sound that it's that actually I don't even know if there's not really a general trend like you know in the American oboe. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, right. like there is an American oboe sound yes. um, versus and, a European oboe sound. Yeah, and up until recently, if you did not have that American oboe sound, just don't even think that you're going to get far in an audition in the U.S. But there's not really that for bassoon. There's a lot of different types of sounds. And in general, they tend to be a little bit brighter and lighter than a European sound for bassoon. Mm -hmm. So I went into it knowing that I was kind of coming from the lighter and brighter approach, just like a really vibrant kind of read. And the Atlanta sound has a little bit more breadth and depth to it, which I didn't know it at the time, but it's totally because of our hall here. Bright sounds just do not work in this hall. So I think the Atlanta Symphony bassoon section and and wind section has gotten some flack before maybe about being too dark or heavy. But I mean, after getting here and playing here, it just bright sound don't project. You can't hear yourself. Anyway, all that to say, before the, uh, the second audition, I thought I was doing that, going in that direction. And I think my musicality and my preparation carried me to the finals and got me a trial. But I got the comment, you know, your sound was just really small, like kind of stuffy and small. Like That's not something I would ever say about your playing. <laughs> like literally ever. I mean, I've, I've heard you play. You have a huge sound. It's gone through evolutions. And okay. I think... Um, for that audition, though, I definitely, I, I was going that direction. I was trying so much to get the darkness that I didn't get the projection. I see. So, and I think someone actually told me, you know, you had like kind of the smallest sound out of anybody 
in the like semis or finals or something like that. So all that to say, you know, I went it with went into it with this preconceived notion on what they were looking for and tried to give them my version of that, but it ended up not benefiting me at all. That, that's really interesting to me because you <laughs> still won. Like how right. you, usually if you hear as a comment from a judge, either stuffy or small attached to your tone, you're not going to win that audition. So you must have played your butt off. <laughs> I remember it going really well in the finals. Yeah. <laughs> I also had a trial, a Two trial weeks, actually. Okay, so that that was going to actually be my my follow up. Is that common to have two trial weeks? Like, were they were they back to back weeks, or were they in different different times? They were back to back. I think for principal positions, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think it's general practice that they, they give two weeks. Okay. I don't know, don't quote me on that, but I, I feel like that's pretty standard. Yeah, here. No, no one no one's listening, so it's okay. Yeah, but um, <laughs> 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 right, you know. Um, so I, I was thinking about uh, about the feedback that you received. Did you receive feedback from um, your first audition that you got to the semis? Yes, I think I got emails. It's somewhere in my email. Yeah, and did you? But did you request them? I did. Because I've had I've had a lot of you know working at New World Symphony. I've had a lot of fellows that have come to me asking, you know, should I ask for, for feedback from the panel and this and that, is that okay? Will they, will it count against me if I do? And I always tell them, no, ask, absolutely ask the personnel manager 100%. You know, some orchestras will give their, their comments. Other orchestras will, they won't just because, you know, they're, they're kind of just jotting down little things to remind them about, about each candidate and not actually thinking of, of each one as, as to, to give actual feedback. Um, but I do think it's important to receive feedback because you never know, like, like what happened with you, you never know. You're going to, you're, you may take another audition for that specific spot. And at least you have their feedback to know how you can kind of tweak it a little bit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you auditioned for for the LPO in 2013. Mm-hmm. You came from from Colburn before that, right? You were you were just a, a recent grad from of Colburn. Yeah, actually, the LPO audition was the week of graduation from Colburn. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice graduation present. Very fortuitous. It was it was so I was so lucky to have that happen. <laughs> Had you taken other auditions before LPO? Yes, I believe LPO was my fifth audition. Wow. Okay. Typically in audition, when you're on an audition circuit, you experience more, a lot more no's than yeses, Mm -hmm. right? Because then, you know, once you, once you find a job, you usually stay with that job for, for a number of years or however it is. So how do you, how do you handle that loss, that rejection? It can become heavy. You start to question, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Am I doing it? And is this what I want to be doing? How did you handle all that? All that, I guess, just try to you know talking to other musicians and even like professional musicians who will tell you like I took ten auditions before I got this job or you know mm-hmm. fifteen auditions before I even advanced to semis. Right. So it helped. I mean, it it really made me think that you know everybody's timeline is different, and you can't say like, oh, this person won a job at twenty two, so that's what I need to do, and like that's how it has yeah. to be for me. I mean, you you kind of have to come to it in your own time, and then also, I mean, I so I had gotten let's see, the five auditions I took were for LPO. 
Um, the first I took was Cincinnati for a second and associate, I think. Mm-hmm. Or I believe that's uh, maybe just associate. And then LA Opera Principal Bassoon, Jacksonville Principal, Milwaukee, second and associate. So the four auditions I took before LPO. Okay. I think I advanced in two of them. Um, and only and one of them only by like the skin of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I um, I was kind of used to the rejection and just kind of building and, and learning. But you know, there was still, like you said, a lot of negativity that builds up. And you know, I almost didn't take the LPO audition. Really, I was very close to canceling my flight. So what put you over the edge? What 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 made you decide to take it? Um, in a studio class I played for Whitney Crockett, who is now principal bassoon of yeah. uh, L.A. Phil. And I think at that time he had just gotten there or maybe had been in town for a little while, but hadn't really had much connection with the Colburn bassoon studio. And he was like, dude, you got to take it. <laughs> you, I mean, yeah. if, if you go and just play like what you did, then you you, you got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'd gone to some music festivals with Chris Pell, who was principal clarinet there at the same time as me. Yep. Um, and that was motivation as well. You need to told me, you know, like we've played together before, and I really enjoyed playing with you. And I would love it if you came and audition and just like forget the all the baggage, just come and take it, see what happens. So, I mean, I, I actually wasn't at Chris's uh, audition. I just remember Chris; he had a very strange audition for LPO. It was the night before a hurricane was about to hit. Mm-hmm. And so they did, I think it was 60 auditions in one day and they crammed it all together and, and Chris ended up winning. I started right as, I think right as Chris started, I think I started in like August of, of uh, 2012 when mm-hmm. he when he started, that would have been his, I guess his first year. But he's now in Cincinnati, so congrats, right. to, congrats to Chris. From all the auditions that you, the four auditions before the LPO to the LPO, what do you think actually made you put you over the edge? Or and I'm asking this question because I, there are so many people that are like, "Well, I I stuck to who I am. I stuck to the way I play and and how I how I present myself, and that was the orchestra that fit." Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate description? I think so, and I think in general, in, in auditions, you want to go in and present your voice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like when I was talking about the Atlanta Symphony audition, I was trying to go in and show them something than other other than what is me. Yeah. And I think that thankfully some other aspects of my playing kind of carried me. But um Right. So, <laughs> so it, I, on one hand it worked, but on the other hand it, it you weren't really representing yourself to the to for them fully. Right. Yeah, so I think always go in and play be be you just express yourself so as far as what i changed between those auditions i think my preparation changed i played more mock auditions okay i recorded myself more and you know just the more you take auditions the the better you're gonna get at it if you're you know kind of keeping track of what's going on but yeah so i i wouldn't expect to go in and win my first audition so i'd use what i learned Right. those first couple to kind of just hone in. But I think definitely playing for more people throughout the audition process or throughout the preparation process. Yeah. I think a lot of people wait to do some mock auditions until it's like two weeks before the <laughs> the audition. Yeah. And it's like, it, that doesn't really help so much. <laughs> yeah. What did you do specifically? What was the dirty, the nitty gritty <laughs> that you had to do for, for these auditions? Because it isn't just running excerpts and, and, and play. There, there, there are specific things that each and every person does. And I think each, everybody does it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. 
What did you do? I do, I do want to clarify. I think doing a, a mock audition two weeks before can be helpful. It just depends on why you're doing it. Okay. So if you're, if you're doing a mock audition two weeks before and expecting to like change and implement a lot of things that people are telling you, I don't think that's a good idea because that's not a lot of time to cement new ideas. So um, as far as my preparation routine, you know, I, I get the list as soon as possible. I make two copies maybe three, mm -hmm. so that I have materials for people when I play for them to look at and mark up. And Im immediately I box off, like, what do I know? What have I played before? What am I comfortable with? And this is right. probably kind of the routine for, for most people. So I make that determination. And then what is like, I know it, but it needs some like kind of regular maintenance. And then what is totally new? So I try to attack the totally new stuff every day or maybe every other day. And then the middle list, try to do, you know, every few days, just refresh. And then if there's something really comfortable, then I can, mm -hmm. you know, not do it so often and spend my time on what really needs the, um, the yeah. detail work. So you're prioritizing like what it is that you need to work on more than, than other things. Yeah. And then within that really asking myself, why is this on the list? What are they trying to get out of this? Good question. Because <laughs> yeah, there's you know there's some excerpts like for us um, Ravel Piano Concerto, the um, G major. Yeah. Okay. The third movement with the fast. That's on a lot of auditions. Okay, so let me ask you one question in in regards to the Ravel. Do you do both parts? Mm -hmm. In auditions, yes. Yeah. How fascinating that I know this as a violist. <laughs> just want I just want to pat myself on the back a little bit. <laughs> Actually, nice. <laughs> I had a, I, I, when I, I saw you light up, I had a feeling you were going to ask that question like you knew something. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bizarre. Uh, Bassoon know. trivia hour. Yeah. Can you imagine playing that in an audition and just leaving out every, leaving other, out of, every yeah. two bars? <laughs> for, for our audience that's, that's listening, that doesn't, under, that doesn't know about the Ravel Piano Concerto. So it's what, two bars for the for Bassoon 1 and then two bars for or one bar? They, go, they trade off and on between first Bassoon and second Bassoon. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it's two, two bars. I can't remember. It's been a while yeah, since well, it's either two what, or four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever it is. And, and so one of the tricks is that the first Bassoon will just play the whole thing down. They, they, you don't trade it back and forth, right? And well, in an audition, no. Well, because there's nobody to trade with. But um, okay. yeah, and in orchestra, I played it both ways, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I did it once. Oh, gosh, a long time ago. And, and the first pursuing player was just like, I'm just gonna, I'm playing everything. Mm -hmm. It's just, it. I guess it just, I don't know if it just made it easier or something. It's I mean, just, it's what we're used to for auditions. Yeah, it's actually yeah. harder to me to do it as written and doing it because you have to, you know, jump on the train. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have also heard it where two bassoons are playing. Both, both playing the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it gives cool. you a safety net, you know. Yeah, because if you're if you start to derail, you can just drop out. Yeah, <laughs> kick, <laughs> kick the person next to you to take it. And, and hope hope that they're still on the track. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Tag them in. <laughs> um, but you know, something like that on an audition, you yeah. know, it's going to be technique. That's what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I've found since being here, I, I don't think we even really put it on our bassoon lists that much if at all because we've had a, a couple of bassoon auditions since i've been here because everybody now has such great technique that we don't find that it tells as much mm. yeah um, you don't need yeah. to hear 40 people run that down perfectly yeah and everybody plays it too fast and in the hall it's just a blur mm. so we we don't really listen to it too much because it, it doesn't 
give us any new information that, you know, like Marriage of Figaro couldn't give us. Right, right. So just really, you know, analyzing what about this excerpt are they looking for in my playing? How can I communicate it? And then on top of that, how can I make it my own and put my own special sauce on it? How far out from your audition do you start looking for, I think it was Ryan Roberts who coined this, uh, start looking for the magic read. Mm. Uh, because if you get it, you know, if you get it three or four weeks out, the temptation is to practice with it and then you might end up running it into the ground or, you know, and then sometimes they do change while you're practicing on them too. And so then maybe it's not magic by the time you get to the audition. So I'm just curious as to what, uh, how, how you handle the read situation for, uh, for an audition. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've taken an audition and I've changed my general remaking process since then. But what I've done in the past, I guess I've started about four to three weeks before the audition. So maybe somewhere closer to three weeks and just really breaking them in slowly. And it's always important to have at least three reads that you could play the audition on at least and feel totally comfortable and not like you have to adjust lots of things about your playing so i would start about then and then like you said i I would try not to run it into the ground once i find it i would just kind of keep it in rotation because if if you don't play it at all for a week or two it's going to be totally different when you come back to it so i try to keep it in rotation but not overwhelm it and then depending on where the audition is I will have not blanks, but, you know, not totally finished reads. Because if I'm, you know, coming from Atlanta, going to um, like Minnesota. And or it's, altitude, sure. Yeah, and it's yeah. snowing there. I can't play on my humid Atlanta reads in exactly. Minnesota. So it really is, a, it's making reads as a, it's your instrument. Yeah. A lot of people say the best read wins the audition. Yeah. How long does it take you to make a read? Oh, from what stage? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, because I, I, I mean, Matt mentioned Ryan from uh, New York Philly, English horn player in New York Philly, and you know, we we talked to him a little bit about making reads, and it is important. I mean, obviously, but bassoon reads are so different, in, mm-hmm. not not so different, but they're different in in comparison to a, to an oboe read, the length of time and that it takes, and I think your reads last longer. Is that correct? They do. We're we got the the longer end of the stick. <laughs> compared to oboists, you know, their reeds are more temperamental, don't last as long, and they're harder, they're, their instruments are less forgiving. <laughs> right. So they're the violins of the of the woodwind family. I guess. Yeah, no, they're crazy. <laughs> Go ahead and say it. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here, okay? No, you don't have to. Yeah, no one's listening. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to read into the subtext uh, from your answer about the reeds and say that you're not one of those musicians that really fixates crazily on reeds i can tell that about you am i right (laughs) yeah you're right you can play whatever and it's gonna sound good and within reason of course i used to be more of a person that would just kind of put whatever on there and make the best out of the situation i mean ultimately we do have to be able to do that to a certain extent because reeds vary from day to day and you're not always going to have a good read. There's no way that you're going to have a good read 100% of the time so you have to be able to work around it make sure that you still sound good so i used to be more along the vein of just like throw something on there and do my manipulations and all that and and make it work now that i've been playing in orchestras for a while i just want something really reliable right and i don't want to have to change too much about what i do from week to week so i am a bit more concerned and and exacting on 
my read process. And especially now, I, I recently switched instruments, actually. So I'm really trying to find what works best for this instrument in terms of like shape of the read and scrape. But I, I, I'm still, I think, a little bit less neurotic about it than other bassoonists. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's a good way to be because like you say if you're if you're constantly waiting for great reads you probably end up disappointed most of the time you know yeah. a lot of the time you're you're playing on a good read but not the once in a in a millennium kind of transcendent read that plays itself so yeah i don't know it just something about your answer i could kind of tell that and i'm <laughs> kind of wired the same way <laughs> Matt plays in a plastic read. <laughs> Legere. I play a lot on, on a Legere, yeah. I have for a long time. I used to have one. I need to get another. It's so comforting to know that you can always have something when you open the case <laughs> that's yes. gonna you can rely on. Yeah, they've come a long way. Yeah. I need yeah, I, I the last time I had one was actually when I was in Louisiana. So it's yeah. been a while. And it was great because we were doing park concerts. Um, yeah, I was going to say with the humidity out there and it being outside. Yeah, uh, like, oh my gosh. I started getting interested in them when I was doubling because sometimes a bassoon would sit there for a long time and you're playing clarinet and playing saxophone and you have to jump back on it. And uh, if the reed was dry, you'd be toast. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the beginning of my interest in it. And now the Legeres have gotten quite good. Yeah, I'll have to try them again. It's like a car carbon fiber, like a carbon fiber <laughs> bow or, or, or something yeah. like that. Which, which they have, I mean, there's... Those are actually really good. You know, I, I actually equate reeds to bows um, because if you're an instrument, if you're a string player, you know, it's your bow is the main instrument that you need to have because you obviously your instrument, your violin, your viola, cello, whatever it is, is, is obviously super important, but there's only so much it can do without the bow. Yeah. So it's the bow that makes it, you know, makes the sound, makes the, you know, the articulations, all that kind of stuff. So I was surprised when I, talk to string player friends in the past about how much they will spend on a good bow. Yeah. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's more than my whole inch. I mean, granted string stuff in general costs more, but bassoons are not cheap. So I was shocked when it was more than my instrument for a bow. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. A good bow can make, I mean, it's a world of difference. So you were talking about, I mean, obviously we can, we could talk about reeds all day. I know. Oh, I'm, how, I just I'm know. good on reads. We don't. We don't have to do okay. it anymore. <laughs> that was my right. read talk for yeah, the, I'm, the week. I'm waiting for the main event here. <laughs> we talked about Atlanta. You said Atlanta Symphony um, was the final round. The screen came down. Mm -hmm. I don't remember about LPO. I think the LPO final round. The screen came down. Also, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think so. What is your take? I mean, I we I sent you this article about blind auditions and mm -hmm. their philosophy. I mean, the 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 person who wrote it, Tomasini, was saying that that it needs to change. The screen needs to go away, and that's how we can now have diversity in our orchestras. I'll tell you that from from my point of view, I don't agree with him. But I want to hear what what you what you have to what to say about that and how. Um, what you think about because we've I've hired you for for the National Alliance for Audition Support that New World Symphony has with Sphinx and the League of American Orchestras and you were one of our coaches for our audition intensive and and we talk a lot about this about you know the screen and how important it is. we named our podcast this <laughs> behind the screen I mean I truly believe that is so important I mean it you know whatever sixty seventy years ago um, when it first was started when they first started to do it the importance of how it's 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 helped women uh, get into the orchestra but i want to hear your your take on 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 what you think about screens 
um, and what you think about specifically kind of that article. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of in your camp too. I, I don't agree with much of what he says. I do appreciate that he's kind of stoking a conversation and I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. Absolutely. Fair point. Yeah. But yeah, there were a lot of points that I, I didn't really agree with. Most auditions in the U.S. are screened up until the um, semis and then the screen comes down right. or the finals. One place that I can think of that has a screen all the way and also has a much higher number of African-Americans in their orchestra than anywhere else is the Met. The Met. Yep. yep. 100%. They also have a process where they must make a hire at the end of the audition and there are no trial periods. The person who wins immediately starts their tenure process. I didn't know that. That's actually uh, that's actually fascinating. I knew about I, I knew about the no hire mm-hmm. uh, policy that they have to they have to hire after a certain round. Right. right. So once you're in the finals, they have to choose somebody. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know about the uh, the non-trial week. That's 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 interesting to know. Thank you for sharing that. That's good. I believe I'm correct in that. You can maybe contact Weston or uh, my friend Billy Hunter. They would know more for yeah. sure. But I, I believe that's their process. Yeah, okay. Um, and yeah, they, I mean, they have way more African Americans in their orchestra than any other orchestra in the, in the states, and obviously throughout the world because orchestras in Europe are not exactly the most diverse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. We haven't really given a fully screened process its real trial, you know? There are some places that do it. The vast majority of orchestras don't. So I think we need to really fully see the process through. I also disagreed with his statement that, you know, once you get to finals and there's however many people, that the playing is indistinguishable. That's just, that's a big no for me. Ridiculous comment. You know, I've been in, I don't know how many audition panels now. Quite a few. Yeah. And there's never been an instance where I was just like, you could swap either person out and everything would be equal. Like, no, that's that's never happened. <sighs> that just kind of immediately made me shake my head. And then it's interesting. It's an article by a white man. <laughs> yeah, there, there had been a number of articles that came out in, in this past week, all by some old white dudes. Mm-hmm. That's one issue. But okay, they're they're bringing up topics that we need to discuss. And it's important that we discuss it. And it's good that it is in discussion. And and I've I've spoken to Billy about this. I've spoken to Weston about this. I've spoken to a number of people about this, you know, just in my in what I do in my job, working with NAS, with Sphinx, and working with all these young musicians of color and, and what, what it is that, that we're trying to achieve. But then you got, you know, you got a bunch of a bunch of white dudes saying like, well, this is the way it should be. Did either of you happen to catch Slatkin's response? So thank you for bringing that up. Oh, I didn't. I was just about to mention this. So it's a little bit triggering, Andrew. I don't know if you should read it. I, I can send hmm. it to uh, And actually, even for women, because he mentioned the fact that the screen was, uh, well, first of all, let me go back. This was published because he's got a book coming out, yeah. and this was a chapter in his book. So he felt like this was a good time to uh, just give us a little teaser. It was an opportunistic kind of thing for him to release this now on his blog. But mm-hmm. he talks about basically not only is the screen not helping with the women anymore because it's almost 50-50, and he doesn't think that there would be any colleague on any committee that would discriminate against a woman. That time has passed, so it's almost offensive to those people that there needs to be a screen. And then secondly, he goes on to list these examples of why the screen is actually inherently unfair. What if the second flute player is auditioning for the, the orchestra and she's not there in the room? 
they're obviously going to know she's taken the audition. It's 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 crazy, and, and it's it, unbelievable. But the thing that actually drove me um, over the edge with his, and again, Andrew, I can send this to you, but it was it was he said in my heart, and this is a quote from from his. It's going to be in his book. In my heart, I truly believe that the days of overt discrimination in the music world are over. Yeah, <laughs> he's proclaimed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna blow the mic levels with this. No, how hard. I'm please laughing do. at this. Please do because that is complete bullshit. I wish the listeners could see my face right now. That's and no offense to Leonard Slacken. I mean, he's a great musician, but to say something like that is completely off base. Mm-hmm. Completely out of touch. Yes. Yeah. I I don't even know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> start with that. Um, wow. I think people like to have this rosy rose colored glasses on and think you know not in my orchestra you know i me as an individual musician in this orchestra i feel that i would never do this thing and like i could never be biased in this way because it's so much against my principles and even if that's true okay you're one person in an orchestra of 70 80 and you might not be on that audition panel i can't trust everybody in the, the group that i'm in that they're gonna have those same feelings and beliefs and and right it's just crazy to me like People would, are so f- offended by even the thought that they could be biased or racist. Um, I'll throw the R word, R word out there. Mm-hmm. They're so offended by the idea that they could be that or being accused of being that, that they don't want to look at their actions that are you know, microaggressions or are actually racist. They're so offended at the thought of being called that they don't even want to question themselves and their actions. So there's a book called uh, White Fragility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, I think her name is, that wrote it. And in there, she's, she talks about, she doesn't talk about white privilege. She talks about white, the, the most difficult person to reach is the white progressive. Mm-hmm. The one who thinks that they are so woke mm-hmm. that how could they even, uh, there's no way, I have so many friends that are black. I, you know, there's, how dare you call me? But, but they don't see, it's, they're the ones that just, just refuse to hear or to understand how, centuries of you know this oppression has has actually turned them into who they are and it's just a learning process and 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 we all have it and it's and it's not anything i mean i have it it's just something that we are all trying to overcome and learn and to become better people yeah Um, and i think people see it as a condemnation it's like mm -hmm. you're you're calling me racist that means i'm a bad person and i will never be worth anything and it's like Maybe for some people, <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> but it's more calling out your behaviors and actions that are impacting others, and showing you this is what what you're doing wrong. Here's what you can do, or you know, even just calling out the behavior like this is bad. That should be a signal. I need to change something. Yeah. It's just such an affront to them. Yeah. And look, I mean, I I, I heard someone once tell me they're like, it's just there's like you said these microaggressions where. Somebody told someone else, oh, my God, look at me. I'm, you know, who, who just came back from the beach. Look at me. I'm almost, I'm almost as dark as you. Oh. Yeah. And it's like, but those are the little things. So you're just like, as a white guy, I, I probably said that. And mm-hmm. now, I mean, I just see now it's just like, oh, that was really shitty. That's, that's probably not that you should it's not. A, yeah, it's not a condemnation. I mean, it's an invitation for you to grow. To grow, to learn. You know, and that's what I, anyway, that's, I think that's what we're, what we're, what I'm trying to do. And I think a lot of us are, 
and I don't I don't want to get off this topic, but I wanted I want to talk a little bit just about like so you you touched on being on the other side of the screen mm-hmm. about being about listening to auditions. Are you on your the musicians committee? I don't know what you call it in Atlanta orchestra committee, whatever it is that people that would would help be in the uh, negotiations. I am not. I'm on other committees, but not the um, we uh, we're called the. Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Players Association. So okay. I, I'm not on that. That's the committee that can help kind of shape the way auditions are are run, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know whether or not the screen stays up the whole time. Am I accurate in saying that? Yes, but there actually has been, and I've got to be, you know, things have not been decided yet. Um, no, you don't say but, anything that you can't, you know, right. that you can't reveal. Sure. I mean, it's been published by the ASO in, in statements, so I don't think I have any problem saying it. But there's a committee that's being being formed about our audition language mm-hmm. and how we can change it. We've been talking amongst ourselves, the musicians, and then also there will be collaboration with management. There are some things about our process that can be changed without negotiating with management Mm -hmm. and there are some things that definitely have to be um, negotiated with management so i think we've seen good headway and there's been a lot of discussion we're kind of knee deep in the process right now so there's not a ton that we can divulge but i think we are moving in the right direction good no that that's, that's that's great to hear i mean and as long as the conversation is going i think there is room for change right i think that Yes, it should be an ongoing conversation, but it's a hard line to toe, like with what the urgency is, because, you know, with the news cycle currently, you know, this was huge. Arts organizations were putting out statements left and right, um, like right after, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and like that news cycle is pretty much gone. And I feel like a lot of people, well, it's not gone. It's not anywhere near the height that it had before. And I think a lot of people, it kind of just fades in their memory. And I think the time, if you really want to get these new ways of thinking about this industry, the time to do it is when everybody is really hyper-focused on it. There have been police killing Black men and women for years, and it's like, you know, there's a surge of hype, and then dissipates. Surge of hype dissipates. I think it was different this time because of COVID. Everybody was at home watching TV. You can't not see it it's right in in your face so i think it was different this time and in the length that it was you know a huge part of the news cycle but i I think we definitely should have some sense of urgency yes the conversation should be ongoing but we do need to act while we have you know this catalyst yes i agree that i think the the height of of this it has been higher than it's ever been it needs to stay there of course yeah over time it, it, it settles down. But I think what's happening now will really change. I've, I've, I've said it before. I think it's important to keep this conversation going. I think it's important that, that, we're, that we are, are actually acknowledging it, you know, what's been going on systemically and, and, mm-hmm. and actually um, make, make change. And the only way to do that is, is to keep reminding people. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, to keep reminding people, is to keep the conversation going. Yeah. Because you're right, and, it does. The dust does settle, mm-hmm. and until that dust is kicked back up again, unfortunately, horribly, the dust gets kicked up because of some terrible thing that happens, and then people start talking about it again, and it's a big thing. But why not keep that conversation going and and keep keep driving forward? Yeah, and I know the main focus of this podcast is auditions, obviously, but I really 
sincerely hope that orchestras out there that are looking to make changes don't just say we're going to make all our auditions blind and that's it like that might help address some things but there are myriad other problems within the institution of classical music that need addressing and so you know putting a done sticker slapped all over it you know after you check this one box that's that's not gonna fly okay let's let's address one of those problems Mm -hmm. tenure Mm. tenure the the tenure process amongst orchestras is flawed mm-hmm. not in every orchestra and i don't want to i don't want him to say that it's 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 across across the board but not getting feedback not being not being told what it is that you can do to improve you know all of a sudden you're not given tenure i'm trying to think like what i can say about my experience because I, I i do love my colleagues but there were some flaws i think in my tenure process you know the stuff that wasn't relayed to me or you know stuff that i heard from someone not on my tenure committee it's kind of like a even if things do come through the the proper pipeline, you know, like the tenure committee meets with the music director and the personnel manager, and they take notes, and then you you the musician meet with the personnel manager and, and music director. Even if that all happens according to plan, it's still like a game of telephone, you know. Yeah. And there's just so much opportunity for things to get jumbled up and and not really get to you the the, the way that they should be. So actually, I really like that idea of not having a private tenure review meeting. I mean, if you're actually trying to find the best person for the job and you want to help someone, what would be the the detriment to not having right. a conversation with them? You know, it is a it is a kind of uh, a pie in the sky type of idea, but mm-hmm. why not? Why be afraid to say what it is that you think that someone can can do? And if they again, if they're if they're doing great, great. Tell them that. Let them know. Yeah. Yes, there has to be a certain fit with the the vibe, and Weston has talked about like it's a it's an adding to, and not necessarily yes. like yeah. it's it's a growth um, of the ensemble when you join. Right. You're right. Yeah. A lot of people view the tenure process as a conformity thing. You're absolutely right, and thank you for for bringing that up because well, the committees definitely do. Yeah. Because I've heard tenure committees say that exact thing. Candidly, because I was a personnel manager, they say ah, they don't fit in. Mm-hmm. They're just not fitting in with the section. That's not a good reason to be dismissed yeah. for any musician. And then not only are they losing their job, but they're not even being told a valid reason. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, the contracts protect this. They don't have to give a reason. Right. There has to be a discussion about this because... These things have gone on forever and ever and ever, and they get glossed over in CBAs because people don't discuss it enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not things that even get brought up. Hopefully now they are starting to get brought up. I just read uh, today, I didn't even know this was out there, um, Weston and, um, and Shea Scruggs' article on, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, um, in the union, the local, AF, the AFFM. Uh, there's an article about them, and there is, there is a section about fitting in. And focusing mm-hmm. on fitting in opens the door to a host of social and cognitive biases. But it's true. It's like when you say, oh, well, they don't fit in. That's just such a, a cop-out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, tell me why, what specifically. What, exactly. Yes. Before we let you go, I just, I, I'm curious what kind of advice you would have for any, any of these, you know, any, any young musicians taking auditions, whether it's bassoon or just in general, handling nerves, handling the pressure, you know, and, and, you know, what to do afterwards if you don't, if you don't get the yes, if you don't get the nod, 
I should have written down the list because I have a lot of things flowing through my brain right now. Um, in preparation, listen to a lot of recordings. Orchestra committees can tell when someone has played whatever excerpt in context. It's you can you can just tell like that person has played this piece in an orchestra before. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't played that piece in an orchestra before, you need to make it find a way to make it sound like you have. So, <laughs> good advice. L- yeah, play <laughs> play along with recordings. Listen, get a score. Play for a lot of different people. As far as like day of audition, I have taken beta blockers before. I don't think I've ever taken them in a final. I think I if I take them, I take them for prelims and maybe semis. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I've ever used them in a final because by then I feel comfortable enough that I. My nerves are not as much of a distraction. Meditate. I meditate um, before performances, like all the time, not just auditions, because I want to be in the space, in the room, in that moment, in the right headspace for what I'm about to do. So I meditate and, you know, it could just be simple breathing in and out, like in through the nose, out through the mouth. I also have an app called Headspace. Yeah, Headspace is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I use that a lot. Maybe not quite as much recently since I'm not performing so much. And I actually, I do get performance anxiety. Yeah. So it really helped a lot when I was playing a lot of concerts. So yeah, that's kind of like day of stuff. Yeah. Make sure you sleep, get into a routine beforehand so that you know when you're going to wake up and have everything planned out what you're going to wear. Um, <laughs> look up a... <laughs> no. I'm super anal about stuff. So yeah, I, I know what I'm going to wear. I look up a picture of the stage that I'm going to be playing on. Yeah. Oh, I oh um, no! When I've taken auditions, I've gone the night before to the to you know to the hall or wherever it is, and you know just so I know how long it would take me to walk there, where it's going to be, so there's no kind of you know sudden you know, like weird things like I get lost or whatever. Yeah, you want as little distraction as possible yeah. on the day of the audition because you have your goal is to play that audition to the best of your abilities, and if you have any like the little things start to creep in and add up, right and take away your attention so planning out as much as you possibly can and then as far as like if you don't get the job like we talked about you know message the personnel manager so you can get some notes Mm -hmm. find out things to work on if you need some time off if you can afford it you know to take some time away from the instrument and breathe a little bit because audition prep is it's intense it's stressful so i usually will take a uh, um, a break after audition even if i win it I'll take like a week off. You just need time to reset and chill out. Auditions are are so are like you said so intense that the day of the audition you're you have you're holding so much adrenaline and anxiety and tension and things like that. Yeah. That release, you know, a lot of people for that that release, and I was one of them. Find really bad ways <laughs> to, <laughs> to to cope and. You know, I'm looking for good ways, you know, positive ways to kind of let that release that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, take some time away from the instrument. Maybe do some exercising. Yeah, get some good endorphins going. Right. Talk to family. Just the things that get you out of the whole mindset of audition land. Be a human being. Yeah, yeah. and it's. I mean, it's okay. I know it's gen- like it's common practice if you don't win an audition to hit the bar right after <laughs> and that's fine in there you know <laughs> yeah i mean i i have too i for sure have been there but trying not to linger on it too much and like stew and get bitter because that's i mean that's not going to help you in the long run right and, and i do i do find that from the people that i've i've spoken to if you're in your a game and i'm not saying somebody's going to go in there and you know just really not not 
perform at their best level. But if you're performing at your best level and you and you still don't get it, it's not because of what you did. It's mm-hmm. because of tell me if I'm if I'm saying this correctly. It's it's because of what they're looking for or what the sound might be or or just I, I mean I don't know because you know you've done everything that you can do to prepare mm-hmm. to be ready and to to show them what it is that you can offer. Mm-hmm. And if they're not choosing you, it's because of something that you can't control. Auditions are just totally subjective. There's right. not much at all about an audition that is objective. Like beyond right. like, can this person get a sound out of their instrument? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you can if you're there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, it's totally up to everybody's individual yeah. taste. And, you know, there might be five to nine people on an audition committee. There's no way that you're going to be able to please everybody yeah so it's it's not a personal indictment on your playing at all yeah it's just out of your control thank you honestly for for just being so open and candid about um you know in this conversation and, and just about what's going on right now in the world and, and how we can help change it and make make things better and thank you for having me it's good to it's good for me to talk about these things because you know i think about them a lot and it's just, it's all up in here and it gets there's nowhere to go but <laughs> Man, we'll, we'll, we, we'll have you we'll have you back anytime you want yeah, yeah. i love it i mean we can put a, a fourth person on the call so if you want to make this a trio and that would be and we'll uh, we'll all grill somebody <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's, let's find someone i'm sure we can <laughs> that'd be great that would be actually that's a really good idea maybe we should look into that yeah yeah i'm into it very cool well, listen andrew uh again i want i want to thank you for for taking your time congratulations um on, on atlanta symphony continue doing what you're doing and thank you uh, for for being a guest on behind the screen Thank you. Thanks for having this conversation. It's good to see you guys and hear you guys. And I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah, we are too. Thanks so much.